planet Mars is paradise. Voices are never raised in argument. Never. There's only one sex, so no emotional problems. No fast cars. No noisy discos. Everyone is equal and lives to 803. Me? I sold up and moved to Earth. folks, Mackenzie Lambert here, your host for Mac and the Movies, where we look at everything from art house to grindhouse, mainstream to obscure, the forgotten and the unforgettable. Hope you're all doing well. Today's episode is one that is way overdue. I originally wanted to tackle this subject last year, but held off due to the passing of actor Billy Drago. I'm finally doing the Rudger Howard tribute episode. The films on the docket for today are Nighthawks, the theatrical cut of Blade Runner, Lady Hawk, The Hitcher, Split Second, and Hobo with a Shotgun. Before we look at the films, let's take a look at the man himself. Born Rutger Olsen Hauer on January 23, 1944, in the province of Utrecht, in the Netherlands, during the German occupation in World War II. His parents were both actors who operated an acting school in Amsterdam. Hauer attended an art school, but left to join the Dutch Merchant Navy at the age of 15. He spent a year traveling the world, but was unable to be promoted to captain due to being colorblind. He attended acting classes upon his return, but dropped out to join the Royal Netherlands Army as a combat medic. Hauer ended up leaving due to his personal protests against using deadly weapons. He returned to acting school, graduating in 1967. He started out as a stage actor before making his television debut in 1969 after being cast by Paul Verhoeven for the period drama Floris. He made his English language debut for the British film The Will Be Conspiracy in 1975. He would return to Dutch films before his American film debut, Nighthawks with Sylvester Stallone. Now let's dive into the movies. Spoilers ahead. We got movies! is a key member of a European terrorist network. 
He bombs a store in London in broad daylight and immediately phones the media about his actions. He becomes persona non grata to his organization after finding out that too many children were killed in the bombing. He is to meet a courier at a college party, but the courier is tailed by authorities. Wolgar kills the British agents and the courier. He manages to escape the scene, but the courier was carrying Wolgar's new passport, now in possession of the authorities, and his face will be everywhere in Europe. After some plastic surgery, he makes his way to the United States and settles in New York City, where he intends to commit more acts of terror to regain favor of his network. Deke and Fox are the top two detectives of the Street Crimes Unit Decoy Division. They put themselves in harm's way, dressed as civilians, to take down local thugs and thieves. They're so good at their job and have military backgrounds, making them desirable to the ATAC squad, Anti-Terrorist Action Command. Deke and Fox are to go under extensive training under Detective Hartman. Quickly, Volgar makes his presence known after the bombing of Wall Street buildings. Following some leads, Deke and Fox manage to identify Volgar, which leads to a foot chase through the subway tunnels of New York. From there, the situation escalates with assassinations, hostages, and Volgar targeting those close to Deke. Nighthawks is an underrated gem in the crime drama field. You hear a lot about Death Wish, Dirty Harry, and the French Connection. Nighthawks deserves to be in the conversation. You really get the feel of the grime and the cold character of the city. There is also a political thriller element to the film that recalls the Day of the Jackal. You see a balance of both sides, the assassin and the authorities trying to stop him. The simplistic climax is far more preferable than the drawn-out chase, which was used in the middle of the film instead of for the ending. Bruce Malmuth made his feature film directing debut here. Malmuth captures the desolate feel of New York winters and how it affects the city. Malmuth would go on to direct Hard to Kill with Steven Seagal. David Schaber provided the story and co-wrote the screenplay. Originally, Schaber wrote the film as essentially the third French Connection film for Gene Hackman and reportedly Richard Pryor to be his partner. But it never got made. Eventually, Universal acquired the rights to the story and Schaber changed it to Nighthawks. Other films he wrote for include The Warriors and Hunt for Red October. Schaber provides a compelling story with some great dialogue for both Stallone and Hauer. Dick Smith provides the makeup effects. Smith was one of the all-time greats in the field, having worked on The Exorcist, The Godfather, Little Big Man, and Scanners. Keith Emerson, the Jimi Hendrix of the keyboard, provides the music score, a mix of orchestral and his elaborate prog work. Sylvester Stallone gives a grounded, believable performance as Deke. He's by the book and follows regulations, but he won't allow for innocence to be in danger even if the situation calls for him to take immediate action. If people only know him as Rocky or Rambo, watch this film for one of his best turns as an actor. Billy D. Williams plays Fox, Deke's partner. This is the Billy D. we know and love. He's smooth, but he's a badass too. He shows some serious range here as well. The look on his face when he sees a young boy at a drug bust displays a moment of humility for Fox. Making his American debut is Rugger Howard. He manages to balance being terrifying but also charming when seducing the ladies. He manages to make Wolgar unlikable and plays up that angle. 
Supporting roles feature Persis Kambata of Star Trek The Motion Picture, Joe Spinell of Maniac, Lindsay Wagner of The Bionic Woman, and Nigel Davenport from Chariots of Fire. Nighthawks is a film that deserves more eyes. It is one of the best New York thrillers with a solid cast and talents behind the camera. Check this one out if you missed it. It is the year 2019 in the city of Los Angeles. On distant colonies, robotic slaves called replicants do menial work. Their presence on Earth is outlawed. Any who make it to Earth are to be hunted and destroyed by a special squad of detectives named Blade Runners. When a small group violently make their way to Los Angeles, it is Detective Rick Deckard who was assigned to find them and kill them. This band of replicants are led by Roy Batty, among their ranks are Zora, Pris, and Leon. Replicants only have a lifespan of four years. It is believed they are looking for a designer who can extend their lifetime. One by one, Deckard thins out their ranks till he is face-to-face with Roy. The film does raise a number of questions. Rachel, an assistant to the head of the Tyrell Corporation responsible for the creation of the replicants, is herself a replicant who thinks she is a human. How many other people in this universe are replicants, yet they are under the assumption that they are human? Is Deckard himself a replicant? It doesn't help that there are so many versions of this film, but the question doesn't get fully answered. I agree with the sentiment held by both Razorfist and Sargon of Akkad that Deckard is only a replicant if Blade Runner is a bad movie. Deckard being human adds to the moral dilemma of his character. More so than Harrison Ford, the real star of this film is the city of Los Angeles. The artists and model makers who worked on this film create a future that has been used in so many other films after this one. Trancers, Tim Burton's Gotham City, and 2010's Repo Men owe a lot to this film. Even the big screen take on Super Mario Brothers used Blade Runner's art director David L. Snyder for the post-apocalyptic look to the Mushroom Kingdom under the rule of Dennis Hopper's King Koopa. Ridley Scott makes the most of his setting. He shows it without over-exploiting it. Jordan Cronenweth has an amazing eye for capturing the details and communal blood flowing through the urban veins of Los Angeles 2019. The score by Vangelis is proper for the film, yet it doesn't really have a, a theme or a melody that stands out to me. Harrison Ford adds another classic character to his menagerie with Deckard. He's equal parts Sam Spade and Han Solo. He does the job and isn't afraid to be snarky while doing it. He provides a great counterbalance to the cold delivery of the late Brian James. The scene he shares with Howard's Roy is an excellent display of dichotomy between a man doing his job and a machine with a will to live.
Hauer is amazing in this film. He gives a menace to Roy Batty, but there is a fire with him, a determination to live. His Tears in the Rain monologue was originally written by David Peoples, but Hauer added lines of his own and made that moment his. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the Tannhauser Gate. All those moments will be lost in time. Blade Runner deserves the high status as one of the most revered sci-fi films of all time. Between the eye candy of the setting, a stellar anti-hero lead, and a game cast not seen in this type of film, Blade Runner deserves to be on your shelf, and it is required viewing for anyone who claims to love film. As another Ford character once said, it belongs in a museum. Gaston is a thief who manages to escape his prison cell. During his breakout at an inn, he is confronted by the henchman of the bishop. When he is about to be captured, he is saved by the knight Navarre. They both escape into the plains, Navarre accompanied by a hawk. They take shelter in a farmer's barn for the evening. That night, the farmer tries to kill Gaston before a wolf takes him out. Navarre is not to be found, but a young woman appears and keeps the wolf company. The next day, Navarre reappears and the woman is gone. Navarre and Gaston survive another ambush by the bishop's men, but the hawk is wounded by an arrow. Navarre demands Gaston take the hawk to a man by the name of Imperius. We find out that the wolf was Navarre and the hawk was the woman named Isabeau, two lovers who were cursed by the bishop. At night, Navarre is the wolf, while Isabeau is the hawk by day. Navarre plans to kill the bishop to destroy the curse put on them. Lady Hawk is a great example of classic fantasy film in the 1980s. During this time, you had Willow, Legend, The Princess Bride, Dragon Slayer, Excalibur, Highlander, Your Hunter from the Future, Time Bandits, The Dark Crystal, and many others. Simple stories, the art and the makeup effects, the set design, the characters. Now it just seems we have grand battles of CGI and the same plot over and over again. Gone is the wonder and the creativity of the genre. Richard Donner was at the helm of this production. Donner has done his share of classics, 
Superman, The Goonies, The Lethal Weapon series, and Scrooge, Lady Hawk stands out as his only venture into the fantasy genre. Alan Parsons of the Alan Parsons Project produced the music of the film. It shows in the heavy use of synth, almost coming off as inspired by the music of Rick Wakeman and his medieval ice skating show. Years ago, I stumbled upon a meme. Uh, It was a picture of Rutger Hauer with the caption, Hey girl, how are you doing? At the time, I couldn't buy into Rutger Hauer as a romantic or a love interest. After seeing Lady Hawk, I can totally buy into Hauer being a heartthrob. The square jaw, the bright eyes, the charm. He pulls it off magnificently. Michelle Pfeiffer is an absolute goddess in this film. She is stunningly beautiful. Pfeiffer we would see as the scene-stealing Catwoman in Batman Returns. There is also Scarface, Married to the Mob, and Dangerous Minds. Matthew Broderick was two years removed from his turn in War Games and would become a superstar a year later in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. He has his mischievous charisma as Gaston the Mouse in The Lady Hawk. The supporting talent is nothing short of impressive. British legend Leo McKern of The Omen plays Imperius the Monk. Alfred Molina is memorable as Cesar. I flipped when I saw Italian exploitation regulars like Giancarlo Preet, Alex Sara, Venantino Venantini, and Nello Pazzafini uh, in supporting roles. It's been a long time, but you know what it means when we see Pazzafini, right? I'm the best-looking man in the Middle Ages. My, my, my. It warms my heart when I see actors from low-budget Italian cinema in a big-budget Hollywood film. Lady Hawk is a great reminder of what fantasy films used to be before the indulgence of Lord of the Rings and Warcraft. Howard is casted out of type as a love interest, and he makes it work. You have a great story. If a special agent Francis York Morgan likes it, it must be good. Jim Halsey is taking a cross-country drive to deliver a car in San Diego, California from Chicago, Illinois. While driving, another vehicle passes him and speeds up ahead. After nearly falling asleep at the wheel, he picks up a hitchhiker along the highway. 
The hitchhiker goes by the name John Ryder. They see the car from earlier on the shoulder of the road. Halsey sees something that worries him. Soon, Ryder starts telling Halsey of his last murder. Halsey manages to push out Ryder and speeds up. Later, a family station wagon drives past Halsey. In the back seat, Ryder shows himself to Halsey. Halsey tries to warn the family that they're in danger. Halsey is driven off the road and the station wagon drives off. Halsey catches up to the station wagon to find the family has been brutally murdered. From there, the cat and mouse game continues between Halsey and Ryder. There's the infamous scene of the diner with the finger and the french fries, the attempt at the police to coax Halsey into seemingly going for the gun, Ryder attacking two cops with Halsey in the back seat, Ryder sneaking into bed with Nash, leading up to the infamous sequence with Nash tied between two trucks. Imagine Duel, but instead of a semi, it's Rugger Hauer. In fact, I saw someone describe it as Duel meets the Terminator, and that 100% fits. The Hitcher also takes cues from the Wrong Man film, a la North by Northwest. Halsey is implicated in the crimes of Ryder throughout the film to being the one accused of committing them. By the time the authorities become fully aware of the situation, it has escalated to a point of no return. There was an instance where I was waiting for the plot twist to reveal Ryder was just a figment of Halsey's imagination. We find out that Halsey was the one doing all the killing. Uh, The moment where he briefly falls asleep at the wheel would be the right spot to start that plot. But, uh, oh well, the movie itself is good as is. The Hitcher was the second film for director Robert Harmon. Harmon would have a lengthy TV career, notably the Jesse Stone films starring Tom Selleck. Mark Isham provided the electric music score. Um, Not bad for a guy that has over 180 music credits in film. Howard does what he does best here. He's creepy and calculating. Hearing him talk was like listening to a Jake the Snake Roberts promo. You had to really listen, which made him more effective. Originally, Howard was given the, an idea for a character based on Ted Bundy. Talking to the director, he said, here's a book uh, you know, about Ted Bundy. Uh, read it and, and tell me if that does anything for you. And I started reading this uh, <clears throat> book about Bundy, and I went, this sucks. Because that's not the movie I think I want to make. I don't want to play reality. I want to make play fiction. Power made it so much better. The 80s were a good decade for actor C. Thomas Howell. For the Hitcher, he plays up the emotional exhaustion caused by Ryder. He shows how much of a toll Ryder has taken on him. Howell got his start in E.T., The Extraterrestrial, The Outsiders, and Red Dawn. Howell would find steady work even to this day. Jennifer Jason Lee stands out as Nash, a truck stop diner waitress who gets caught up between Halsey and Ryder. She's the one you really feel for in this film. She showed kindness to someone, and that put her in Ryder's crosshairs. Lee remains active, appearing in high-profile films like The Hateful Eight, The Upcoming Woman in the Window, Annihilation, and The Twin Peaks Revival. Jeffrey DeMunn of The Walking Dead makes a late appearance as the sheriff, The big surprise for me was seeing Armin Shimmerman as the interrogator of Ryder. Star Trek fans know him as Quark from Deep Space Nine. I know him as Andrew Ryan from Bioshock. The Hitcher is a standout exercise in dread and suspense. 
Hauer is great as usual, but C. Thomas Howell makes you buy into the terrorizing situation. Uh, this is definitely one to see. London, 2008. The city is flooded due to global warming. The floods have led to a citywide infestation of rats. Detective Stone is chasing after a killer from his past, tracking him by the sound of a heartbeat. He trails him to a nightclub where a dancer is killed, her heart ripped out. This killer is responsible for the death of Stone's partner, all while Stone was having an affair with his partner's wife. Under the orders of Thrasher, Stone has a new partner, Detective Durkin. As more murders occur, Stone and Durkin begin to learn more of the killer. Whoever it is, they are tall and have multiple strands of DNA. DNA from some of history's murders and their victims. To bring the fight to the killer, they load up on a deadly arsenal, miniguns, and grenade launchers. Split Second is one of those films that defies categorization. It's a sci-fi dystopia horror buddy film. It takes place in the future, so yeah, science fiction. In 1992, 2008 was the future. The murder creature is essentially a xenomorph slash venom. Stone and Durkin have a comedic-fueled chemistry. Tonally, the film is all over the place, but that adds to the fun of the film. Tony Malium was the director of this film, He's likely best known for the 80s slasher gem, The Burning. With Split Second, he's pulling different ideas and genres together and managing to make them fit perfectly. Rutger Hauer gets to be a loose cannon here as Detective Stone, and he's clearly having a good time. He channels Mel Gibson from The First Lethal Weapon. He plays well off of his supporting cast. Kim Cattrall plays Michelle, the widow of his former partner. Control doesn't do a whole lot here, save for showing some TNA and being a damsel in distress. The supporting cast is filled with noted actors like Pete Bustlewaite, Alon Armstrong, Alastair Dunian, and Tony Steedman. Michael J. Pollard of Bonnie and Clyde and Dick Tracy gets a high spot in the opening credits, but he doesn't even show up until the last 15 minutes. Stuart Harvey Wilson plays the role of the alienish killer. Split Second is a no-frills sci-fi action movie with Howard going over the top as the lead hero. That's enough for me to recommend this film if you want a cheesy action movie. There's far worse out there, but Howard elevates the film more than it has any right to be.
based on the fake trailer that was screening Canada with the Grindhouse double feature, Hobo with a Shotgun centers on a nameless hobo who comes to Scumtown in the hopes of building a future for himself. Sadly, he sees firsthand the cesspool the city is, from the corruption of youth, the bought and paid for services of the police, and the control of the city under the fist of the Drake. There is little being offered in the way of an honest living. After earning enough money through scrupulous means like bum fights and eating glass, he has enough money to buy a lawnmower. But he's caught in the middle of a robbery and decides on a nearby shotgun instead. He wastes the robbers and goes on a vigil, taking down criminals that are loose upon Scumtown. He befriends a prostitute named Abby, whom is repeatedly entangled with the Drake and his crime family. This leads to an escalating showdown between the Hobo and the Sons of the Drake. There's also the duo known as the Plague. Finally, we have the inevitable climactic fight between the Hobo and the Drake. This is one of those films where everything you need to know is in the title. In the wake of Quentin Tarantino's collaboration with Robert Rodriguez on the bomb that was Grindhouse, there's been a resurgence of interest in the subculture of Grindhouse filmmaking. The only real positive I can think of is the excellent documentary American Grindhouse. Other than that particular film, not much has come to this owe-to-low-budget by the seat of your pants cinema. Let's make it clear, this is not a Grindhouse film. It tries to make Grindhouse a genre as opposed to the marketing technique it was during the late 60s to the early 80s. This film tries to be a trauma film. Granted, trauma helped out with many of the films in the Grindhouse era of the early 70s to the early 80s. Trauma didn't hit their stride until 1985's The Toxic Avenger, and by that time, Grindhouse was essentially dead. There's much more of Lloyd Kaufman and Robert Rodriguez in this film, and not so much Ted V. Mickles, Mario Bava, Herschel Gordon-Lewis, or Al Adamson. The film is highly stylized, with the rich colors and Sam Raimi-ish camera angles. This is far removed from Grindhouse film cinematography. You can get the same thing out of a better movie like Punisher Warzone. At least with Punisher Warzone, you get earnest performances, straightforward angles of the action, and violence that is over-the-top without turning off viewers. The film goes to lengths that Grindhouse films didn't go. Sure, you had a little girl shot in Assault on Precinct 13, or a little boy beaten to death in Fight for Your Life. Those moments were treated as serious, threatening events within the plot of the film. However, having a school bus full of children burned to death with a flamethrower or a mother holding her child for dear life before having a Molotov cocktail thrown at her for the sake of getting morbid laughs is just bad taste and mean-spirited. Rutger Hauer and Molly Dunsworth are the only good things I can say about this movie. Hauer does his best with the bad material given to him, as does Dunsworth. Their relationship gives this film about as much heart as there is sentimentality in an Adam Sandler movie. It gives the illusion of emotion, but is severely lacking it upon closer inspection. Years earlier, Howard was in films like Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, Sin City, and Batman Begins. What happened? With regards to Dunsworth, she still works today, appearing on the Trailer Park Boys animated series and the upcoming film, Gnaw. If you want a taste of Grindhouse Cinema, skip this film. 
If you're looking for full-blooded Grindhouse titles, you know, go ahead and check out Foxy Brown, Cannibal Holocaust, Death Race 2000, Houseu, Shogun Assassin, Grizzly, or Driller Killer. You'll get much more out of these films. The aforementioned films and many, many more like them are better worth your time than Hobo with a Shotgun. And that wraps up this episode on Rudger Hauer from Mac and the Movies. Thanks for listening. Next time, I will be taking a look at select films based on the superheroes of Marvel Comics, but not from the MCU. I'll be reviewing the Amazing Spider-Man TV movie from 1977, Doctor Strange from 1978, Captain America starring Reb Brown from 1979, the 1994 Fantastic Four movie from Roger Corman, and Punisher Warzone with Ray Stevenson in the title role. Also, there will be a special giveaway, so be sure to check out that episode. That episode will drop on Wednesday, September 30th. If you enjoyed this program and want to see it grow, consider a one-time donation via Venmo, Cash App, or PayPal. I have a subscribe star that you can join and help guide the creative direction of the show, starting at $1.99 a month. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I have my BitChute channel as well. All of that in the description box. Until next time, this is Mackenzie Lambert for Making the Movies. Take care and stay safe out there. Mm-hmm.